everyone, and welcome to the European Startup Show, where every week I talk to exciting startups in Europe to learn more about their challenges and strategies they use to scale their business. In a recent survey by McKinsey on the future of workplace, nine out of 10 people said they did not expect their employees to return full-time to the office. My guest today is Larry Gadea, founder and CEO of Envoy, a workplace platform that helps companies manage hybrid work. Founded in 2013, Envoy has created products to help companies interact with visitors, manage deliveries, and simplify conference room experiences. But now it's building products for the post-pandemic era, like ensuring employees are COVID safe before coming to work, hot desking in a safe way, touchless sign-in, and much more. Its products are used in more than 14,000 offices around the world, including companies like Deliveroo, Monzo, and Trainline in the UK. Envoy has raised over 59 million to date with a Series B of $43 million in 2018. They're backed by Andersen Horowitz, Mendel Ventures, and several others. I'm very excited to talk to Larry about the future of work in this episode and how they pivoted successfully in a very difficult time. So welcome, Larry. Hey, awesome. Thanks so much for having me. I'm sure you've done this a million times, but I have to say, I was really intrigued by your beginning story. And I wanted you to take me back to whatever you can remember. But from what I understand, you were born in Romania and then you came to the US with your parents when you were very little. Is there anything about your childhood you think that prepared you for a life as an engineer initially in Silicon Valley and then later on as an entrepreneur? It's your upbringing, the way you are brought up by your your parents, the folks that were around you as you were younger. These are the kinds of things that you remember and, and what builds your values as you grow. I was just only a couple of years old. My parents were wanting to get out of uh, Romania. They had these regime stuff and they wanted none of that before ending up in Canada. We actually ended up also in Germany. My parents were working these jobs. These are like educated people. I think my mom even had a master's in biology and was like teaching in a school. She was cleaning houses and my yeah. dad was picking berries. And they both would be doing it all day long. And it was the most laborious of jobs. These are like highly educated folks, but there's something really good about that. It just kind of shows that, hey, um, you got to do whatever it takes. When you're brought up that way, it's easier to also just see hard work as a good thing. That's really cool to hear. Let me forward now to your early days. You were 17 when you joined Google as an engineer, and then you were one of the first 50 employees at Twitter, two iconic tech companies in the world. I would love to hear what were those early days like working at Google and Twitter what do you remember and cherish most about that time? At the early days when I was at Google, like remember, 17 years old, it's just like being surrounded by really awesome, smart people that are literally the best at what they do and just learning from everybody at all times. It's a great environment. It's kind of nice when you just know you can ask your peer about something and, and kind of learn something. I mean, when you join as a 17-year-old, they don't exactly put you in the core systems of the Google search engine. You kind of end up doing a lot of documentation and plugins and little developer tools. That's what I was doing before. That's actually why I got it. I was basically building these plugins for this like, Google desktop product. So for me, writing plugins was really great. And Google liked that too. And I, hopefully I delivered it. We got lots of people on the platform, built a bunch of stuff there. And then eventually it got interesting. And, and I, I wanted to do something smaller too. Because then it's like my own ambitions were like, but I want to do something one day. And then I went to Twitter and then started this. I understand that your idea for Envoy actually came when you were working at Google. It's actually the transition of Google to Twitter. Google was like 20,000 employees or something at the time. And, and then Twitter, it, it was like 40 people. But 
I knew that Twitter was going to do really well. It was in the social space at the time. That was really big and really exciting. It was also kind of trying to do something very differently. So when I was at Google, very built out, lots of really smart people. It didn't feel like a big political company. It felt like a company that was a really great place that innovated a lot and built a lot. Now, of course, at the early Google times, everyone was like super full of themselves, as they rightfully should be. And, and I fully support it. However, it ended up in a world where they just built everything themselves. So they built their own like databases, they built their own like web serving engines, all that stuff. They also built their own visitor management systems, their own lighting control systems, their own mapping for internal employees only, their own uh, meeting room management, their own bike stuff. It's just like this laundry list of just a whole bunch of stuff that they built themselves. But when I went to Twitter afterwards, none of this existed. And what I noticed is that they were hiring people after people to just do what is essentially menial jobs. They didn't want to do the jobs. They all saw it as like a stepping stone onto something else. So the retention would be low. Uh, Like the investment, the personal investment would be pretty low too because they knew that they were really shooting for something else. But this was like just not right. And we had wonderful people running the office, but it didn't seem like a future because it was just the same problems that Google had solved a long time ago. They're just throwing humans at it. So whenever I see that, it's a real opportunity. And I think what, what really made the idea very click and like it was 100% is the moment as we got bigger, they started building all the same things that Google had. They didn't go out to vendors. They didn't go out to find some company that did this well already. They just built their own stuff. And I was like, what is going on here? Why are you guys building all the same stuff I had 10 years ago when I was at Google? And they're like, yeah, there's nothing out there. And I looked around. I, I asked the people like Google, Facebook, Apple, which all built their own things independently. Nobody talked with each other. And it was just obvious at that point that there's this massive, massive market in the workplace. And the tooling that was available is very kind of RFP driven. It's very driven by people just doing it because of compliance or because of security. Yeah. And what basically ended up happening is no one really went after this space that really was uh, customer-centric and, and, and especially end-user-centric. And we got in this world of these companies that were known for their customer centricity. They basically decided, okay, great, we're going to build our own stuff. And the moment I saw it happen yet again, uh, I was like, this is ridiculous. And we could be building these tools. Not only could they be way better, not only could they be way more supported, like we can translate it. We can have it in the different locales. We can have people support it even when you're the engineer, the one engineer that built all these tools went to sleep. This is by definition a company that builds things that you know, we're always building uh, like innovative twists on everything. We'll try to use like location technology and all that that these companies wouldn't have even been able to do on their own just given the time requirements. So it seemed like a no-brainer to be building tooling in a, in a user-centric way. So you started Envoy, you started with visitor registration, you built in conferencing facility, all these different software to manage a physical workplace. You closed your funding 2018, and you probably had this whole roadmap of all these other ways you're going to digitize the physical workplace. And then the pandemic happened. And it really affected your business because your business was all about the physical office. I think everybody came to the realization that this was going to be a fundamental shift in how we thought about work and going to work. And so I can see why a pivot made very logical sense. The thing that I want to get more insight from you on is, you know, when companies pivot or the ones that I've spoken to, a lot of them in this pandemic time, they've been small, they've been nimble, they've been agile. And so pivoting has not been as painful 
you were a big company when you decided to pivot. I'm thinking that pivoting at the stage that you were in and not exactly knowing what the future was going to be like. I mean, COVID was just rolling out. So I was wondering if you could take me through the time when you knew you had to pivot and how did you go about figuring what to do? And then how did you align people behind it? You literally have regulation being set up by the law telling you, no, you cannot go into the office. And we only sell the offices for people physically going into it. That's a real problem for companies like ours. And it was, it absolutely was. I even remember asking our CFO, hey, so I want you to project what's if we were to lose 8% of our customers every single month for 12 months. And he's like, well, you see, Larry, we would lose literally everyone. That's a lot of revenue lost and we will not be able to pay for people. One does not just go in front of 150 people. It's like, hey, guys, I know that we're all upset about whatever, but we got to change everything. And it's totally going to work. You have to have some real conviction to be able to do that. So when everything shut down, no one knew that it was going to take a year or two years. And in just the way people work, there's a lot of wishful thinking around like, well, we'll be back in two weeks. Don't worry. And in two weeks, and there's literally no sign of a vaccine or anything. So basically, we knew this was going to take a while. And at the same time, our core business was fully impacted, so we didn't have an option. At the same time, uh, our customers are pretty damn excited about what we build. And, and they're excited because we deliver and like we really, really focus on the experience. And, and that's another growth hack there. Just care about the interface that your customers use with your product because that's what they remember. But regardless, these customers were very excited about Envoy. The thing that happened is they wanted more things now. They're like, listen, we talked to our camera company, we talked to our door access company, we talked to all these different companies that build the facility stuff for our company. And they've either like gotten rid of all their people. I can only like buy their existing stuff that makes no sense for us. Can you guys help us and build something? We have some employees that cannot literally work from home and and every city has an exemption of up to 5% of your employee base can be back. And we need to get some people back because they have no Wi-Fi. There's two people in a bedroom. There's like drilling outside. There's like all this construction. And it's basically like, we need to get some people back. Now, those are the companies that had like the optionality there. Some companies are like, we're a factory. We're a warehouse. We're a biotech company. And we need equipment that is in a workplace that we cannot put inside of people's homes. So they need people back too. It's basically one group of people were all just like, we need to go back anyways. And then the other group of people were like, we need to go back in a very small amount anyways as well. So all signs of companies needed to go back in some way. Now, this is for employees, though, not for visitors. So that's a very important point because the employees didn't have a system and stuff before. So the opportunity that came up that we jumped on immediately was people needed to keep track of people going into their own office, employees going into their own office to keep track of, are we going to be safe about it? And of course, literally 100% of companies said, we need to be safe about it. So they're like, how do we make sure uh, people haven't been near others that were uh, sick? How do we make sure they haven't been to some random province in China? How do we make sure that there aren't too many people in the office? So the capacity management, the contact tracing, the desking, where desking was all about people being apart, even like temperature scans and stuff. These are all things that companies uh, like us, including, of course, ourselves, were experimenting with. And that's how uh, we basically uh, had customers stick along because they're basically like, well, we're going to need to return anyways at some point. Plus, remember, there's a lot of people whose like, jobs are also literally to operate facilities. And these people understand that if we're going back, 
we need to be thoughtful about it. So they needed a, a partner to help them do that. Literally every other company was like, oh no, we don't know what to do. And we were like, tell us what to do, what you need, tell us your problems, and we will build you the right thing. You must have also had a lot of customers that said, okay, we're hemorrhaging. We have no idea when this is going to end. And the last thing that we want is to be spending money on physical building related stuff that we really don't need right now. So we're going to stop payment. Did you have a large percentage of customers that did that? And then how did you manage your cash flow then? Obviously, I can't go into like the details of the actual numbers. But what I can say is we had one month. It was, I think, April. That was our first month ever that our revenue did not increase month over month. That one month was not great. And it, it was down because we hadn't built anything and we hadn't come out to say that we we're going to be dedicated to building things for the workplace. So yeah, we did have a, a little bit of a drop off there. But then the following month was better than that month. And then the following month after that was better than all of the months. It's been an upward trend since. Customers will buy things for a variety of reasons. Sometimes they'll buy it because they just need a thing right now. Uh, sometimes they'll buy it because it's very important and they want to get something that's very good. But oftentimes, and this is often missed, customers will buy things because they want to believe in an industry and they want to work with an industry to really figure out what the right thing is. And if they're listened to and if they have uh, good access to the product teams, it's almost like they will literally put money towards help supporting your company in making things go. We had a lot of people that, that were Envoy customers that literally were in that last group because they saw that we kept on building new things. They saw that we iterated. And, and I super thank them for it because that would be like the ultimate of dreams for me where our customers see us as an investment in the future as opposed to necessarily one box checked off in our security policy that we can tell the auditors. That's what drove us to build things. And really, at the end of the day, it was just an awful lot of communication with our customers and uh, building a lot of things that the narrative in the press and everything was like, well, people are trying contact tracing, people are trying hot desking, people are trying these things. And we literally built every single one of those things. And uh, people could try it. Most, if not all, but like of the vast majority of companies saw success in trying these different things. And they were able to keep safe when uh, a global pandemic was running. So a lot of the inspiration for how you should pivot and what you should build and where you should focus came from these buckets of customers that needed to have some level of employees come back either to the manufacturing warehouse, et cetera, et cetera. Yep. Looking back now in those days when you were doing the pivoting, what did you do internally as a company, as teams? What did you do to actually execute and make this pivot happen one of the things that I'd like to point out is communication is one of the biggest issues companies have. I think a lot of companies, and I think relationships in, in general, even outside of companies, the more you're away from people, the more you don't talk with people, the more distrust inherently gets built. The purpose of a workplace is to build culture within that company and to build community amongst the people inside. When you don't have that community building central hub, you now have this issue of this can go bad very quickly. So really, communication needed to go up. What we did is every single week, we met as a company. We did at least an hour of what we call show and tell. I think it's the most important thing to just rally everybody and remind them why they do the thing they do. So we got in the cycle where everybody was on overdrive and people were producing faster than ever. Every single day, we would talk to our sales folks. We talked to support. We talked with product engineering. Literally, everyone was there. Marketing was like, okay, cool. How do we tell this story now that's totally different? It's a lot of meeting, even if there is no clear agenda. The constant communication, especially at the executive level, on a daily basis, 
was one of the key parts that allowed us to do this. It kept everybody stable. It kept everybody excited. Of course, there are people that did not like any part of this too. I want to be clear. You have to remember Envoy, even before the pandemic, we want to operate every single workplace in the world. That was our mission then. It's still our mission now. And it's not just to like operate it. It's to make it like a wonderful place, a place that people can be excited about. We started building some other products. We had deliveries. We had just launched rooms. Talk about bad timing. So we still had folks internally in the company that had seen a lot of revenue success in our visitors' products. But the new products were not doing like nearly as hot. Whenever a company has multiple products and they have one product that's obviously better than the rest, people tend to lean towards the, the, the safe bet that obviously works amazingly. What basically happened in this pandemic, it's like, hey, guys, we're at that discussion again. And we need to not have visitors as a product as the core message anymore. We need to change this to about the workplace and safety and bringing people back. And we need to build functionality around that. So some people were like, this is a visitor's discussion again. We should just stick on the core thing because it's the proven. But others were like, no, we need to pivot. We need to change things. So in the end, we cloned and pivoted where the clone pivoted and the core product is continued going. So we still sold visitors to the companies like the factories, the warehouses, the biotech, those kinds of companies that still were going despite the whole pandemic. But then we had the majority of company working on new things around employees. Now, if you think about it, it's the same backend. It's very similar things like a, a visitor in this case is really just an employee uh, and a bunch of changes like that. But it was not unanimous. Nothing ever is unanimous internally in any company. Dealing with that is kind of interesting. But I, I think at the end of the day, empathy really just solves almost all problems. I think that's also a really uh, common theme that I've heard entrepreneurs talk about where you have to straddle Two places, one which is giving you revenues today, but you know it's not the future. And then another one where you know you need to be for the future, but it's giving you zero revenues today. And how do you balance those tensions? So it was interesting to hear, A, you had this constant communication both at the exec level as well as as the team on the weekly basis to make sure that you're able to constantly address and and talk about the issues that are coming up. And then this idea of having two code bases, one which was against the old world so they can continue bringing in some revenue while this new world was being created. The plan all along was that the Envoy Protect, which is the main thing today that is our core product, it was a churn mitigation strategy. The idea was if we make this product be usable by employees, all of these companies that want to get their people back in, they're going to need something. So hey, why go look for a new vendor with all these new problems, new SLAs, new security agreements, new all this stuff, and not just use Envoy's version of this that we already have and deployed in these 14,000 offices worldwide. This is another reason why the revenue did not just tank. Now, what we didn't expect would happen is that companies would expand their visitors' licenses to more offices. So a lot of offices are smaller, so they didn't have enough visitors to need a visitor tracking thing, which I argue is not the right thing, just given that you kind of have compliance needs all over your office, not just the one giant office. But regardless, these people spread us to more offices because now they can have employees in any of them. Also, all of our billing systems and everything, Protect is built under visitors. So literally, it's free for anybody that has the visitors product. And then if you want to buy just Protect, you basically end up buying just visitors. So what happened is we actually got more licenses sold for the visitor's product that was really just this employee's protect product. And and that is a world now where we are seeing accelerated revenue growth because these companies, we charge per office, these companies are expanding now to more offices. 
Now, of course, being the capitalistic entity that we are, we're like, hey, let's build new products as well that are designed for the pandemic. So we built the desking product. Remember that desking product I mentioned a little bit earlier? It was about keeping people away from each other. And now we've rebranded it to Envoy Desks. And it's about bringing people together on specific days and making sure it's coordinated and making sure that there's a meeting room nearby and making sure that there's going to be food available and that everybody going into the office is vaccinated now. That's how the repivot, or I don't even know what to call it, the merger or whatever the word is here, because we had this like fork of our business and then they're joining back in. But now it comes in with the desks product as a very core thing to hybrid work and the flexibility of work. We've been building all these tools along the way. All the capacity management stuff that was used for safety back then to comply with regulations around the maximum 5% people in in your office. That stuff is now the analytics product inside of our suite. It's exactly how many people are in, visitors and employees. And now you have all these analytics and projections across all the products. Now what's happened is we've been forced to build all these products throughout the pandemic because that is what we needed to survive. And and now they're like full-on products as part of our vision of the Office OS. We kind of accidentally built out exactly what we wanted to do way faster, but we built it with only the functionality that was necessary for the pandemic. And now we have this super full-featured product suite around the physical workplace that's fully leveraged for companies returning to their workplaces. I'm sure all sorts of new virus strains and all this stuff's going to keep coming to throw us curveballs. But at this point, even virus strains are interesting because it just ups the safety needs. That leads me to my last question before we have this rapid round. And it's on the future of the workplace. A year, two years, five years from now, what's the workplace going to look like? Is everybody going to be remote and working in their homes and coffees and Airbnbs coming into the workplace for like specific uh, occasions? Anything that you've seen in your data or your interaction that's different between countries would also be interesting to share. The future of work is going to be in offices, building community together with people that are like-minded. You cannot compete with just the power of people being next to each other and talking about their life stories, talking about their day, talking about their weekend, building real relationship with each other. I want to push on that because there are a lot of companies, especially those that have been born post-pandemic, that are remote first work culture. So they're hiring people all over the world. They don't even have an office. What What do you say to those crop of companies? I think a lot of companies right now are doing that because that's the only thing they could do, including ourselves. I I think a lot of companies will have some form of that. You don't have to be in an office five days a week to get the benefits of uh, a community. But you do have to be more than zero, that's for sure. I I would argue it's more closer to three or four uh, days a week. Every company had multiple hubs with people in them. So I think companies will continue being distributed in that way. But I think there's a lot of people that are very mature that have figured out how they work and how they, they're best for And they will be remote. I just don't think it's going to be anywhere close to the majority. Because at the end of the day, it's really about people enjoying what they do day to day and feeling part of something big and real. And, and not just their bank account. But maybe all the current companies are like going to stay and, and all the new ones are going to be remote. But every major tech company in Silicon Valley has had work from home forever. But there's more companies that understand the concept now, which I think was an important step. What's going to go on to the future is more technology is going to be used to solve mundane problems. The facilities departments, the security departments, the real estate departments of these companies are becoming a lot more data-driven. 
they're becoming a lot more knowledgeable about their facilities, not just their HQ, but their wider range of offices. And, and if I were to say one thing that people aren't expecting for the future, the, the future of the workplace is going to be something a lot more community-driven, much more intentionally than it was before, because I think that people now realize the real purpose of a workplace. At the end of the day, these people just want to be with each other. Yeah, there's some humanness to it, but it's also mandatory. You can't fight against these first principles of people. Well, on that note, we're going to end the formal part of this podcast. (laughs) I want to just quickly touch on a rapid round, which is usually questions outside of uh, what you do at Envoy. And it usually starts with, what's your favorite book? One of our investors, Andrew Chen, just launched his new book, The Cold Start Problem. Highly recommended. It's all about network effects and virality and all this really exciting stuff. He, he just launched it a little while ago and it's really cool. Highly recommended. What is a productivity tool or tip or hack that you have that you can share? There's literal wars uh, being fought over this. I'm still an Inbox Zero guy. I think it's really one of the best ways of doing it. Uh, Having one place to centralize all your stuff, I think is really key. I do think that there's a lot of noise that goes in beside very important big projects. But at the end of the day, you can only focus on two, three things at most on a daily basis that are really major and you can usually remember. Otherwise, you have reminders in your inbox that you can snooze. The snooze feature or whatever Google calls it is key for maintaining the inbox zero system. That doesn't mean snooze everything. That just means that if you don't need to do it today, move it to tomorrow. Okay. And your favorite European city? My favorite European city right now is London because that is where we have our UK office which has 10 wonderful envoys. They are very excited and and we're going to be expanding that office into even more places. Yeah, so that's my favorite city. They also are like really into art and stuff. So I like that. And my last one is a quote, a favorite quote, either yours or a quote that you read somewhere that really means something to you. I just believe in really hard work. I think the give up syndrome or whatever people are calling it is the biggest deterrent to people building themselves in really special and big ways that make them instrumental in hard problem solving. You have to not give up. You have to keep at the annoying thing, despite all pressures around you, despite how obvious it is that it won't work. Resilience is the most important skill somebody can have in operating a company because it's always an uphill battle. The odds are always against you. The only thing that that will get you through it is that resilience, though some would call it stubbornness, but that's a different issue. I love that. I think that's a great way to end this podcast. Thank you so much, Larry, for being on the show today. I really enjoyed our conversation and hope you did too. Absolutely. For sure. For sure. And let me know how I can help in any way. It's always exciting. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave a review. I don't charge guests to be on the show and your ratings and review help the show stay alive. Thank you very much for listening. And until next time, keep building. Keep building.